Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Thursday night, uh, ten of us were in Mobile for a banquet, a scholarship banquet, and just prior to that banquet, uh, Terry and I got to go uh, spend a few moments with former President Bush and uh, talk to him for just a moment. And uh, I got to thinking as I was sitting on the front row this morning, you yeah, that's a pretty neat experience, you know, to get to meet the president, get to take your picture with him, and him to ask you how your church is doing. And uh, But, you know, I, I, as I was thinking about that, I got to thinking about the fact that Jesus is asking me a question right now. How's the church doing? You know, Jesus is more concerned about this church than the President of the United States was Thursday night. That's right. Because he's here. Amen. And what we do with him since he's here is very important. And in fact, I'm looking forward to reading President Bush's uh, new book on why he made the decisions he did, his logic and his reasoning, his values that caused him to make the decisions he made, some that people agree with, some that people disagree with. And and I'm interested in, in doing that, but I'm more interested this morning in the clear and errant word from Jesus Christ about how we need to be disciples. Because you can't have an opinion about that. You're not, you're not entitled to an opinion about what it means to be a disciple. It's not up to you to define it. Jesus has already defined it. And as Alex said earlier, if he's Lord, then you're going to define and align yourself with what Jesus says a disciple is. If he's not, then you're going to try to define it on your terms, but you won't be a disciple of his. Because a communist is either a communist, right? I mean, you're not a partial communist. A socialist is a socialist. A Christian, well, not always a Christian. At least not by the way the Word of God defines it. See, when Jesus began his ministry, he began with calling out four men, two brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And he called them to follow him. And to be his disciples. Now, in the last message, we looked at what it means, what the Great Commission means. And remember, the main verb in the Great Commission is make disciples. And the three participles are going and baptizing and teaching. And what we need to remember about that is that participles are always dependent on the action verb. In our going or having gone, we make disciples. In our baptizing, we make disciples. In our teaching, we make disciples. It's all dependent on what the action verb is in, in those two verses that we call the Great Commission. Making disciples is doing those things. Now, here's the key. Think about it. Who would you go to to try to figure out how to reach the world from Albany, Georgia? Not me. I I think I can be a pretty good strategist and visionary and and leader from time to time, but but I don't know how to reach the world from Albany, Georgia, but I know Jesus does. Because he knew how to reach the world from Jerusalem. And he knows how to reach the world from 
Cairo, from Milledgeville, from Atlanta, from Sylvester. I mean, after all, Jesus cares more about lost people than we do, doesn't he? So if he wanted to give us a plan on how to reach lost people, then I would say that his plan is foolproof. And if we follow his plan, we can reach the world. And that is not by addition. Remember, it is by multiplication because we can't add quick enough to keep up with population growth. We have to multiply disciples. There are two things that will last from this life into eternity. One is the Word of God. It lives forever. It abides forever. The Word that you hold in your hands is going to last for all eternity. It is not just a book written in time by men. It is a timeless Word with eternal truths that will be played out throughout all eternity as we understand the unfolding of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. The Word of God, the souls of men. By the way, you're not going to take anything you own except the Word of God with you into heaven. Not one thing. Not a house, not a car, not a boat, not your favorite outfit, not your pearls, not your diamonds. None of that is going to last for eternity. One day it's all going to be burning. Well, I'm leaving it to my kids. Well, they're going to sell it and take the money and buy something you wouldn't have bought. They're going to squander it. The only thing that lasts is the Word of God and the souls of men. So if we want to make an investment that lasts, if we want to leave a legacy, if we want to reach the next generation, then we've got to do a couple of things. We've got to get people into the Word of God, and we've got to get the Word of God into people. We've got to have people coming to an awareness of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. There are over 250 references in the gospel to the word disciple or disciples. Now, let me just walk through those with you in just a moment, but I want you to see this relationship to the disciples was based on four things. First of all, the knowledge of the person of Christ. Who do men say that I am? Everybody you meet has an opinion about Jesus Christ. They think he's a good man, he's a teacher, he's a prophet, or he is a son of God. Who do men say that I am? If you're going to be a disciple, you need to know how to answer that question. Who is Jesus Christ? Secondly, a love for Christ. Jesus asked Simon Peter in John 21, Peter, do you love me? Not do you like me, not are you fond of me, but do you love me? There has to be a a love for Christ. Thirdly, a submission to Christ. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And then there is obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ. These four things define in some way the box in which discipleship fits inside of you. Obedience to Christ. No man having put his hand to the plow looks back. Now my assignment in this series from the Lord is to help you to understand what a disciple is and how to be a disciple because if you become a disciple and understand the seriousness of that charge from God, then you know how to be a disciple maker. 
So a disciple becomes a disciple maker who gets more disciples who become disciple makers, and that's a process of multiplication. Here's your assignment during this series. You need to listen and to learn and to apply and act on what I say because it's what is in the Word of God. Now, here's the problem. You can't quit your assignment before I get through with mine. Do you understand what I just said? In other words, you can't quit listening when you want to quit listening. You got to listen until I'm through. Because my assignment is to teach. Your assignment is to learn. So now that we've cleared the path, let's look at the background of the word disciple. The word disciple means a learner, a pupil, one who is taught or comes to be taught. Jesus called his disciples to follow him. And so we follow him to learn, to be a pupil, to sit at his feet, to begin to embrace and understand what he has for us. Remember in 2 Timothy 2.2, we talked about that little phrase, entrust to faithful men, that third generation. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. Four generations, really, you could make that five generations because Barnabas taught Paul before Paul ever wrote a word to anybody. So you really could look at that verse. I know Paul was referring to the fact that Barnabas had taught him. That little word, entrust, here's what it means. Make a deposit. It's a banking term. It means to make a deposit, to make an investment that will draw dividends, that will earn interest. And so when somebody makes a spiritual deposit into my life, then I am to turn around and make a spiritual deposit into their lives. It draws interest in me. It draws interest in them. And we keep making those deposits into other people's lives, earning interest, bearing fruit, seeing the results of what it means to invest in another person. So here's the deal. If I'm going to be a disciple, then when I hear the word, I have to obey the word. Do do you know why so many Christians are grumpy and mean and whiny and they fuss and they fight and they argue and they complain and they never seem to be happy? I can tell you why. They've sat in church year after year after year after year and heard and done nothing with what they've heard. I've been in the church for 40 years. Yeah, well, it looks like you've been in a pickle factory for 40 years. Just because you've been sitting in a church for 40 years doesn't mean you've been a disciple. It doesn't even mean you're a Christian. In fact, the Word of God either hardens your heart or it softens your heart. And any word, listen to me, any word not acted on hardens you. And your heart is either pliable like Play-Doh and it can be molded and shaped Or you leave it out and you let the world influence and it becomes like Play-Doh sitting out in the sun, hard and brittle and unpliable. And every heart in this room today is either pliable or hard. It's either building up a wall and a shield saying, 
I'm not going to listen to that. You can't talk to me about that. And some of you, every time a preacher mentions, oh man, Alex mentioned lordship and giving. And some of you said, that doesn't affect me. You just hardened your heart. You just poured a bag of concrete on top of your heart. And you wonder how I can come and I see other people responding and other people making decisions and other people's lives being blessed and I just seem to be going through the motions. I can tell you why. You're not responding to the Word of God. Amen. The Word of God is falling on your heart like hard soil and it's not bearing fruit in your life. And until you and I come to understand that the Word of God was given for us to respond to it, not for us to check a box and say, I I heard that. But were you listening? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. The background of the word disciple. When Jesus saw the crowds, they're all going to come up on the screen for you because I'm going to go through these fast. Matthew 5 verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountains and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, the Pharisees emphasized the externals. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to come back to that at the end of this message. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus talked about first and foremost in the Sermon on the Mount is what God does on the inside of you that begins to show up on the outside. The Pharisees always talked about what's on the outside to be seen of men. And so Jesus did miracles and he taught, but the the emphasis of his ministry was not miracles. The emphasis of his ministry was the message. The emphasis of his ministry was, was that works were subservient to words, that we needed to hear his words, Mark 4, 33. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. In other words, there were people on various levels of hearing. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. The background of Mark 4 is uh, Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus gave us eight parables. And the disciples came to him and said, "Uh, we need a little help in figuring this out. The reason the Word of God makes sense to disciples is because Jesus explains the Word to people who are listening. It's a fog to people who are thinking it's just something I might want to consider and might not want to consider. The reason the Bible is a dead book to people is because they don't read it with the expectation, when I get through reading this, I'm supposed to do something about what I read. It's just information. John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How do we know we're disciples? We continue in the word. It didn't just happen at youth camp. It didn't just happen at disciple now at a retreat. It didn't just happen at refresh. It didn't just happen in a camp meeting or a revival. We continue in the word of God. That's how we truly know we're disciples. You want to know how to know you're saved? You have a hunger for the meat and the milk of the word of God. There's a desire for the Word in your life. It has to be received and responded to. It has to move just from the head down to the heart. It it has to move from being curious 
to being convinced. It will set you free. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so what is Jesus saying? There are five things here. First of all, you have to renounce yourself. You have to renounce yourself. You have to die to yourself. The picking up of your cross. Anybody that was walking outside of Jerusalem with a cross, they knew one thing. That man was going to die. He wasn't coming back. So there's a renouncing of self. Secondly, a willingness to sacrifice. I'm willing to sacrifice, to go, to do, to say, to give, whatever God tells me to do because I want to be his disciple. Thirdly, there's a surrender to the will of God. Not God, show me your will and I will consider it, but show me your will and I will do it. There's a surrender to the will of God. Number four, there's an abandoning of your agenda an abandoning of your agenda. In other words, you take your calendar and your plans and your schemes and you lay it out before God and say, God, take off that which is not of you, which I don't need to do, which is a waste of my time, which is wood, hay, and stubble, and let me prioritize my time so that I know that I'm giving my life to that which is of value. And then number five, a consuming passion for Christ. A consuming passion for Christ. You see, the question is not only what am I supposed to give to God. The question is also what am I withholding from God that is rightfully His? What am I withholding from God that is rightfully His? It could be your time. It could be your talent. It could be the use of your spiritual gifts. It could be your finances. It could be the, your, the way you uh, watch television. It could be a thousand things. But for every one of us, there's something that we want to negotiate and argue and debate with God. Can I withhold that and still follow you? So here's why this is all important. So what's this got to do with discipleship? It's got everything to do with discipleship. Because I can't take you where I'm not going. You know what the problem is? We want our kids to not mess up, not make mistakes, not do bad, not get caught, not get in trouble. But we want to live on the fringes of commitment, but we want them to be committed because we're more concerned about them embarrassing us by their behavior and how it looks on us in our pretense of Christianity than we are in how we really are that our kids can look at us and say, that's who they are. You see, you can't ask somebody to do something you're not doing. Amen. You can't go somewhere you haven't go. You can't get on a bus you hadn't bought a ticket for. I mean, if you want to take somebody somewhere, if you want to be a disciple maker, the first thing you've got to do is figure out how to be a disciple. Because you impart what has impacted you. You give out of what God has given to you. So let's look at the biblical image in Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to look this morning. Matthew 11 and verse 25. Jesus gave three invitations. He said, come to me, follow me, and abide in me. And in that invitation of come to me is also another invitation within the context of coming to him in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. In other words, 
What is an infant? An infant is teachable. They're moldable. They're pliable. They don't think they've got it all figured out yet. They don't think they've arrived. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And in the context of saying that, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. He's a pupil, someone who's come to be taught. This is the invitation of Jesus to intimacy. How we maintain a growing, intimate relationship with Christ so that we can pass that on to our children, to people that we're discipling, to whoever we meet. Jesus was talking to people that were broken and crushed and beaten down. The Pharisees had laid hundreds of rules and regulations and and dogma on them and and all external. And not only that, the, the Romans had laid all these taxes and laws on them. Sounds like religion in America today, and it sounds like the government in America today. People are heavy burdened, beaten down, don't know where to go, don't see that there's any way out, don't know what to do. And Jesus says, come to me and learn from me. And so if I'm going to be in the proper position of a disciple, I need to come to Jesus and learn what he wants to teach me because the law does not liberate. The law tells me I'm in bondage. Jesus liberates And he sets captives free. And so this picture of the yoke is a visual image that could have been clearly understood. It's an object lesson of our need of dependence on God. It's the discipline that we need of surrender. Now here's what a yoke was like. A yoke was often a wooden or an iron piece of material that was straight or curved. And it would be yoked around a leader and a learner, an older oxen and a younger oxen. It would be yoked around an older donkey and a younger one. And the older one knowing how to keep the pace without that yoke chafing its neck would teach the younger one so that one day the younger one could move into the older position and take another young one and they could plow the fields, they could work the ground. And even in third world countries today, the yoke is still being used. Why? Because it's an object lesson even in the 21st century in all of our sophistication that you don't pull something with one. You pull it with two and the leader teaches the learner how to walk in step with him so that his neck doesn't chafe. And so the learner doesn't fall back because that will chafe the neck and it doesn't try to run ahead because that will chafe the neck. And so Jesus uses the illustration of a yoke. In fact, some people think that as a carpenter, Jesus, a couple of commentators 
think that Jesus could have had yokes as his specialty. And when he was teaching, the people in Galilee would understand, oh man, you know, one thing about Jesus, he makes a good yoke. He really does as a carpenter. You know, he's, if, he, if this job doesn't work in this teaching business, he could always go back to making yokes. And so Jesus said, yoke up with me. You don't know enough to plow this field. You don't know enough to do everything I'm going to call you to do. So you get in line with me, and the position is to lower your head and allow the yoke to come over your head, and then all you have to do is walk in step with the leader, with the teacher. And Jesus said, come and take and learn from me. That's the yoke. The yoke is given so that we can learn, so that we can be directed. And notice what he said. He said, come to me. He didn't say come to rules, come to regulations, come to check the box, come to make sure you're goody-goody two-shoes. He said, come to me. It is an invitation to a personal relationship. And that's what a disciple has. He has a relationship with the discipler, with the teacher. They, they invest in one another. They listen. There's a conversation going on. And over and over, Jesus inviting them. Look at who he says can come. All who are weary and heavy burdened. Now, here's the deal about discipleship that you need to understand. Jesus invites. He doesn't impose. If you want to go out there and get your neck chafed, if you want to go out there and try to live life on your terms, he'll let you. And you'll live with the consequences. You'll live with the bad mistakes, the bad decisions, the woe is me. I can't believe I did that. How did I get myself into this mess? How did my family get in this position? How did I ever let that happen to me? And Jesus will be sitting right there on the sideline. And if you're listening to him, you could hear him whispering, I could have helped you with that. You didn't have to go down that path. You didn't have to keep making those bad decisions. I invited you. I don't impose myself on you, but when I invite you to come, I invite you to come on my terms. And my terms are you make me Lord of your life. And if you're not going to come on those terms, then fine. Live the results of your actions. But don't blame me. Don't blame God. Don't blame the church. Don't blame anybody else. Look in your own mirror and say, I got myself here because I didn't listen to the Lord. I wasn't teachable. I didn't want to learn. And when we don't want to learn, we live with the results of being ignorant of the things of God. And we always end up making the wrong decisions. So here's what Jesus, he invites us to his yoke. Not the yoke of the law, which was impossible. Not the yoke of the Pharisees, which was rules and regulations and and legalism. But to his yoke, which was easy and his burden is light. Now here's the difference between the illustration and the reality. In the yoke, the load is equally distributed between the two. But the reality is when you yoke up with Jesus, he's pulling all the load. You just got to stay in step with him. He's pulling the load. He says, my burden, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, I got burdens and I I got things that are difficult. Just get inside my yoke and let me lead. I'll carry that load. I'll be the sufficiency in your life. I'll be your source. 
I'll be the one that you can lean on. I'll be the one that you can depend on. You know, I'll be the one that, that, that you can just take all of this and just give it to me and just get inside my yoke. That impacts everything from worship to work. It impacts everything from uh, recreation to relationships. Finally, the biblical truths exhibited by disciples. What does the life of a disciple look like? Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. What would the life of a disciple look like? Well, it's pictured really for us in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount tells us how we are to live our lives. It's a, it could have been one sermon or the grouping together of many sermons. This is the sermon on the, the site of the Sermon on the Mount. Just behind it is a church that the uh, Catholics built hundreds and hundreds of years ago to preserve that site. And this is the leading down to the Sea of Galilee on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And, and Jesus could have studied, stood, and you can easily see it when you're there. How could anybody without a microphone, without a sound system, teach 5,000 people? Because he would have stood the water behind him, the wind coming in this way, and the people would have been seated. It's a perfect amphitheater. It's an absolutely perfect amphitheater. And in that context and in that setting, the Mount of Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount was given. And so let's look at what a disciple should look like. And this is your test. And by the way, if in any of these areas you're not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, that's why we have this altar. That's why this altar is here. If you're not living up to this sermon, then what you're not doing is you're not putting yourself in a position to learn from Christ and to be a disciple that can impart to other people the things that God is imparting to you. Number one, you exhibit Christ-like character. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. You exhibit Christ-like character. The Beatitudes remind us that it is God's provision, not our performance, that God provides what we need to live this life. God's provision not our performance. It is the picture of life in Christ. Secondly, you impact culture as salt and light. That's verses 13 through 16. You impact culture as salt and light. The blessings lead to responsibilities. Christ demands that we influence others. We are to be salt and we are to be light. In a decaying, in a dark society, we are to have influence I got a text message from a man that I highly admire today, and uh, he's president of the University of Mobile. And he's a part of a movement called 1223. It's a men's movement. And he sent me a text message this morning, about 7 o'clock this morning, and said, good to see you on Thursday. Now let's go take our country back. He wasn't talking politics. He was talking Christians Quit being doormats. Quit being pansies. Quit being sissies. And stand up and be the men and women of God that he's called us to be. Amen. Be salt and light. You know what salt and light does? It irritates. Amen. But it also preserves. Amen. And it also enlightens so that people see, this is dumb. I can't believe we're doing this. Why are we doing this? Why? Because you turn the light on. Let them see where that's going to take us. So, third thing, you obey the Word of God, verses 17 through 20. If I'm salt and light, then to be salt and light, 
I can't be my own salt and my own light. I have to have a resource that's not for me, so I obey the Word of God, what God says, not to lay a guilt trip on me, but to show me how to live His life on this earth. Number four, you practice faithfulness, verses 21 through 48. You practice faithfulness. Now, if any of these are not true in your life, then that's why the altar's here. Is because we need to get these areas right in our lives because we need to be disciples and disciple makers. Next, you live for an audience of one, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18. We don't live for the applause of men. We don't live for the approval of men. We live for an audience of one. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And the last one, you have biblically-based priorities. Matthew 6.19 through verses, chapter 7 and verse 12. Matthew 6.19, chapter 7 and verse 12. You see, Jesus closes by talking about the broad road and the narrow road. He talks, he closes the Beatitudes by talking about building your life and your house on sand or building your life and your house on the rock. He tells us you're going to make a choice about how you build your life. You're going to make a choice if you're going to be effective as a disciple and a disciple maker or not. There are no shortcuts to spirituality. There's no quick and easy cliff notes that you can read. This is a lifelong adventure and a lifelong process. Now, what can happen if we do that? Well, first of all, let me just back up for a minute. If we disobey what God said in the Great Commission, we as soldiers in the army of Christ are disobeying a direct order. He should throw us in the brig or drum us out. We're disobeying a direct order. Nobody under authority disobeys a direct order without consequences. And yet, in the body of Christ, we think we can disobey direct orders from Jesus Christ with no consequences. There are consequences, first in your own life, secondly in your children. Forget the world for a moment. In your own life and in your children, there are consequences to disobeying a direct order. And God didn't give this for a vote in a business meeting. It's a command to be obeyed. We are to come and we are to learn from him. So what would happen if this worked out? Well, I need an illustration. So this is going to take me a minute. You don't mind, do you? You don't have anywhere to go. Everybody know what this is? This is a checkerboard okay Chinese checkers on the back checkerboard on the front everybody know what this is we are slow this morning this is rice all right let me just give you a little illustration here about how multiplication works all right I'm going to take this checkerboard Principle of multiplication. You're going to have to help me with this, okay? And on this square, I'm going to put one piece of rice. Now, second square, if I multiply, I'm going to end up with two pieces of rice, right? You with me so far? I need to start over. <laughs> Third square would be good, four pieces of rice. 
sticky little rice. Four. Fourth square would be tongues. <laughs> Fourth square would be eight. You're doubling. Seven, eight. Now, if I keep doing that on this checkerboard, how much rice do you think would be on the checkerboard? Now, let me tell you. If one makes two, and then two begin to be four, and four, eight, and eight, sixteen, and sixteen, thirty-two, the principle of multiplication. By the time you got to this last square on this side of the checkerboard, well, let's just look at the nation of India. Just look up here. That's the nation of India, one of the largest nations in the world. If you follow the principle of multiplication in the nation of India with rice as an illustration, by the time you get to the last square, India would be six feet deep in rice. The entire nation covered six feet deep in rice because it got started with one who made it two and two who made it four and four who made it eight and eight who made it 16. You see, the problem is not that the gospel is weak. The problem is we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're not multiplying the gospel the way we're supposed to multiply it. You want to know how to deal with the gang issue in Albany, Georgia? You want to know how to deal with the racial issue in Albany, Georgia? You want to know how to deal with the alcohol and drunk driving issue in Albany, Georgia? Start spreading your rice around. Do something about what you've heard and about what you know. The nation of India, six feet deep, which is bigger than the whole southeastern part of the United States, six feet deep in rice because somebody takes one and that one takes another and that one takes another and by the principle of multiplication, the numbers become staggering about what could be done. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.